Well, you look all fancy this morning in your Sunday best, or some of you in your summer cool, and yet I know that underneath that facade, there probably lies some broken hearts this morning. And I wonder if you've come today with a load of sin that is weighing you down. And you know, if we were to be perfectly honest this morning, probably most of us have skeletons in our closet that we would never want anybody to find out about. And yet that's exactly what happened to the woman in our story today. And then she met a savior. We're in a series in the Gospel of John entitled Marvel. And this morning in our story, we're going to see a picture of the most lovely, the most attractive, the most marvelous person in all of the universe. But a person who was misconstrued, misinterpreted, misjudged, and misunderstood from the day he set foot on our planet. You know, many people today are turned off by the church because they feel it's too judgmental. An unquestioned bedrock of our society these days is that of tolerance. We can't stand it when somebody tells us what we should be doing or even more irritatingly what we shouldn't be doing. And the church is viewed as a group of people who stick their noses where they don't belong. So many people avoid the church. And Maybe some even in the church and maybe even you this morning are driven away from it because you think Christians are so critical of other people. Let me suggest this morning that the question properly isn't whether Christians are judgmental, but whether their leader is. In our story today, we're going to see a picture of a woman who was caught in a sin that most societies and most countries of the world throughout all of history have considered wrong. And when Jesus met her, he did not judge her. And that should not have been surprising if you were reading at the beginning of the Gospel of John because he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came down from heaven and we have seen his glory, John says, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The law, he said, came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The marvelous glory of our Savior is in his grace and in his truth. Now take your Bibles, if you haven't yet, and turn to John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. As you turn there, you might notice that there are brackets around this section of Scripture. And if you're somebody that likes to read footnotes, you might read this somewhat disturbing note. Most of the best manuscripts do not have this passage in it. You might say, what's going on here? Well, something pretty big, actually. In fact, this is a path we need to go down for a few minutes this morning. A little bit technical, but very important for those who are followers of Christ. In fact, Pastor Mark asked me to tackle this subject this morning in light of this passage because it's so important. And it's a subject called textual criticism. The upshot of it is that this particular story was probably not written by the Apostle John, nor was it intended by him to be a part of his gospel. And if I were you, I'd be saying, what in the world? Yeah, that's why we need to talk about this for a few minutes this morning. In the providence of God, we don't have any of the original manuscripts that the Bible writers wrote on. We don't have the, the parchments, we don't have the paper or the papyrus that they wrote the original copies on. 
In fact, because the printing press was still over 1,400 years away from the time of Jesus, if you wanted a copy of any of the scriptures, you had to, to write it out by hand. And as you might imagine, over time and distance, discrepancies or differences began to creep into the different manuscripts of the Bible that were floating all around the world because of human error. And so today, instead of, for instance, having the, the actual copy of the Gospel of John that he wrote, we have copies of copies of copies of what he wrote, none of them from the first century AD. So how do we get back at what he actually wrote? Well, it's a fairly simple process, actually, of comparing all of the manuscripts that we have, and when we do an analysis of them, we can reconstruct and figure out what was in the Gospel of John. Now, you need to remember or know that this is not a problem only for the Bible. It's a problem for any ancient literature. In fact, this is the only way we know anything about ancient history at all. For instance, do you believe in Plato? Thank you, Dale. We believe in Plato, but do you know we only have seven manuscripts of the things that Plato wrote? And the earliest one is from the 10th century A.D., 1,200 years after Plato, and yet we accept him. Julius Caesar's book, The Gallic Wars, on which we base our understanding of that period of history, there are only 10 copies of that book, and yet we take that as valid history. There are 49 copies of Aristotle's work, and the second best attested book is Homer's Iliad, 643 copies of that book. But we take their words, works as historically accurate, and yet we have thousands of copies of the biblical manuscripts. And we find that when we do this science of textual criticism, and this can actually be done by non-believers, this is a very objective science, when you compare thousands of copies and, and go through a rigorous academic process, we can get back to within 99.5% accuracy of what was in all of the original manuscripts of all of the Bible. And that is an amazing fact. But the problem comes to bear in our passage today because, as I said, this passage probably wasn't originally in the Gospel of John. The things that we don't know in the Bible are minor. There are a few verses here and there. There's only one other extended passage, Mark 9, 9 to 16, that we have questions about. But everything else is simply a verb tense here or a pronoun there or a number here, nothing that affects materially the teaching or the doctrine of the Bible. And the more manuscripts that are discovered by those who do these things, the closer we get back to the original. The Bible is by far the best attested book of ancient literature and it's not even close. But what about our passage today? Now, this is a technical subject, and if you want to check out for three or four minutes, that's fine. We'll bring you back in later on. But some of you might be curious about this, and you probably should know if you're a follower of Christ and believe in the Bible. There are at least four reasons why scholars think this was not a part of the original Gospel of John. The first is that it is not in the oldest, best-attested manuscripts. The second is the writing style. And by the way, this sermon is available online, so you don't have to write this down. You can get all these notes and references later or even now online if you want. The writing style, you know, we all have a, a style that we write in, and it's interesting that there are 13 words used in these 12 verses that are used nowhere else in the entire Gospel of John. So just looking at it, you could tell that John didn't write this. The third reason is the location in the Gospel of John. The, the flow of the story goes better from 752 straight into 812. 
And in fact, this particular story appears in five different places in different manuscripts of the New Testament. They didn't know where it belonged, and so they just kind of plugged it in. And the fourth reason is that none of the early church fathers mentioned this story at all. And it doesn't appear in the Eastern Church commentaries until about 1000 A.D. So Bruce Metzger, who served on the United Bible Society's Committee for the Greek New Testament, said that committee was unanimous that this pericope, this story, was originally no part of the fourth gospel. And so if I were you, I would be having some serious questions about now. And I hope you do. Uh, the first question I would ask is, if it's not in the Bible, where did it come from? Well, as you might imagine, there were a lot of things that Jesus did that weren't written down in the Bible. In fact, John says at the end of his gospel that he supposes that if everything that Jesus did and taught were written down, the world would not be big enough to hold all those books. So somebody did write this story down, but as best we can tell, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, how much else of the Bible falls into this category? As I mentioned, just one other extended passage and then a few verses here and there that we're not sure about. We are sure about 99.5% of the Bible. But the third question, and maybe the most practical one, is if it's not in the Bible, why is it in my Bible? And why are we studying it today? Well, the short answer to that question is when the Bible was translated into English, the King James Version in 1611 AD, the manuscripts they had available at that time included this story. So it went into the King James Version Bible and for the next 300 years was included in all the Bibles that continued to be translated. And again, Bruce Metzger says that the Bible Society's committee decided in deference to the evident antiquity of the passage to print it in the Greek New Testament enclosed in double square brackets. So because it had been used in Bibles for 300 years, they were reluctant just to like pluck it out and have this gap in there because people would be wondering, what are you doing with the Bible? So they left it in. As to why we should study it, D.A. Carson says this, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred, even if in its written form it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. And then Leon Morris has this helpful comment. He says, if we cannot feel that this is part of John's gospel, we can feel that the story is true to the character of Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true. It speaks to our condition. It is thus worth our while to study it, though not as an authentic part of John's writing. So today we're looking at a story about Jesus that almost certainly happened but that wasn't written down with canonical authority. And since all that we preach here at College Park Church is based on the actual Bible, you might be wondering what we're gonna do this morning. Well, what we're gonna do is take this true story and we're gonna pull some principles out of it that we're then going to preach from other parts of the actual inspired Bible. You got that? That's our hermeneutics. That's our interpretive approach today. So I'm going to be putting some verses up on the screen that will reinforce the things and, and why Leon Morris said that this rings true to the rest of Scripture. If you have any further questions on this topic, you can just email me at mvrogop at yourchurch.com. <laughs> Mark will be happy to feel those queries. 
Well, this is a fabulous story. It, it's one that appeals to our hearts. It, it, it describes the human condition. And in this story, we find three characteristics of Jesus to marvel at. The first characteristic is that we marvel at his wisdom, verses one to eight. See, Jesus had enemies, and they were jealous of his popularity. And they thought the best way to bring him down would be to catch him in something he said, and then they could post it on Twitter, and within a couple of hours, he would be finished. Just making sure you're awake today. But that was their plan, and, and we can tell from verse 6 that they had no interest whatsoever in true justice being done to this woman. This was a trap for Jesus, plain and simple. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And it was a good trap. The woman was obviously guilty. She'd been caught in the act. And Jesus knew as well as they did what the law said about this particular sin. And you need to see this because this is in our Bibles. Deuteronomy 20, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And it goes on to describe the type of execution that should happen. And this is repeated in Leviticus 20, verse 10. So Jesus is in a hard position. He was known as a populist preacher. The people liked him because he had compassion on people. So if he says, well, just let the woman go, they could accuse him of disregarding the laws of Moses, and then the Jews would have to reject him. But if he says, according to the laws of Moses, you should kill her, then the Romans would get after him because they had reserved capital punishment for their own courts. So should Jesus obey the law of Moses or the law of Caesar? Now, us old people in the room aren't very smart. I see we have some youngsters in the room today. Glad you're here. Maybe you can figure out how Jesus can get out of this dilemma. So what I'd like you to do is take about 20 seconds and just explain to your parents or somebody sitting next to you what you would do if you were in Jesus' situation. Do you obey the law of Moses or do you obey the law of Caesar? And if you don't have any smart kids next to you, just maybe share with the person next to you how you would get out of this dilemma. It's tricky. Wow, you're doing a lot better than the first hour. <laughs> well, I thought of a couple of ways that Jesus might have gotten out of this. He, there's obviously something fishy going on here because, as we all know, it takes two to tango. And Jesus could have said, where is the man? We're not even hearing this case until he's here, and we, we actually mourn the blatant sexism of this first century culture. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus could have said, I didn't come as a judge. You have your own courts. Why don't you take it to them? I just came to sort of do miracles and teach. But Jesus didn't do that either. He didn't accuse his accusers, and he didn't evade his responsibility. He, he just stooped over, knelt down, and began to write in the dirt. And everybody wants to know what he wrote in the dirt. <laughs> we might find out in heaven someday. Uh, he may have been writing in the dirt just to give sort of everybody a cooling off period, because this was a hot, angry mob. He might have written in the dirt to divert attention from this poor, embarrassed, perhaps scantily clad woman. My own theory is he might have been writing down a verse from his own Sermon on the Mount. 
If any man looks at a woman with lust, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I, I don't know what he was writing. But when the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, realized he wasn't answering, they asked him again, Teacher, what do you say we should do? And Jesus stood up and in one sentence delivered his marvelous wisdom. He said, let one who is without sin cast the first stone. What is he saying there? The thrust of what he's saying is this, that judgment belongs to God alone. Who are you, sinner, to judge your fellow sinner? Because even though you might not have done the exact same thing that she has done, you also are guilty of breaking this law. And as James tells us, all you have to do is break the law at one point, and then you're guilty of all of it. And suddenly this realization dawns on them, and, and now more concerned for their sin than hers, they drop their case and slink away. There's a lesson in humility for us here. We either are or have been or might be what we so easily condemn in other people. Do you recall another time when Jesus' opponents tried to trap him? Matthew 22, they ask him a simple question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Really the exact same question, because if Jesus said, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews would have rejected him for not being a patriot. If he had said, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, the Romans would have arrested him for sedition. And so he was stuck. They thought they had him checkmated. And Jesus, because of his marvelous wisdom, in one fell swoop, turns the tables on them and checkmates them. Do you remember what he said then? Show me a coin and whose inscription is on it. And then he said this to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And look what happened next. When they heard it, they marveled. His enemies marveled at his wisdom and they left him and went away. They realized they were punching way above their weight class in arguing with Jesus. They were taking, the one, taking on the one who is called the wisdom of God. The one who Proverbs tells us was the workman at God's side when he laid the foundations of the earth and put the beams of the heavens in place. The one that Colossians said is full of the wisdom of God. He, in fact, is the wisdom of God. And in him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Believe me, you do not want to tangle with this God-man because he knows literally everything. You can't trap him. Some of you this morning are not following Jesus or you're wavering in your faith because you have some deep questions about Christianity. And those are legitimate questions. Things like the text of the Bible that we just talked about or the canon of the Bible. You may have philosophical questions like, why is there evil in the world if God is good? Or is hell too severe a punishment for people who have sinned against God? You might have scientific questions that something in the Bible doesn't agree with science. And, and let me encourage you, ask these good questions and keep asking them. God is not afraid of your questions. He's the one who gave you the ability to reason in the first place. There are answers to all of these questions. They are not ironclad answers or else everybody in the whole world would have to believe it. 
but there's enough evidence for a reasonable person to accept if you will just continue to ask and explore. But let me warn you about this. Don't ever think you are smarter than your creator. Don't get into the brain game with God. Just because you don't understand him doesn't mean that you know more than he does. It would be like a first grader criticizing Einstein for his theory of relativity. It would just be insane. Because in that last day when everything is clear and God's wisdom is finally vindicated, I would not ever want to have been in the position of having thought I was smarter than God. He's as much wiser than we are as the sun is higher than an anthill. Even if he keeps some of his ways and his purposes cloaked in mystery for now. Others of you may be following Jesus, and how do you marvel at his wisdom? Well, you may be in an intractable situation in your life. You may be in a corner that you don't see any way out. There's no solution. Let me encourage you. There is always a way out with Jesus because of his marvelous wisdom. And he tells us in James chapter 1, just ask of him in faith, and he will give it to you generously. Turn to God and seek his wisdom as you marvel at it. Secondly, we marvel at his mercy, verses 9 to 11a. This woman was clearly guilty. She had no case to plead. She had been caught in the act, and according to the law of Moses that we just saw, she and her paramour should have been executed. By the way, aren't you glad that the New Testament doesn't reiterate this punishment for this sin? You're thinking that's a trick question, right? Well, there'd probably be a lot less people walking around the face of the earth if that happened. But, but let me warn you against something. Just because we're in the new covenant now, don't you ever think that this sin is not a serious sin. In fact, the severity of the punishment under the old covenant should be a potent reminder to us of how seriously God takes the act of sex and the marriage covenant. And in a room this size and those listening online, I'm quite certain that there's somebody here who is having an affair right now. Or you're thinking about it. And my word to you from the word of God is flee from that. Like a bird from the snare. The wages of sin is death. And as Solomon said in Proverbs, can a man... Take fire into his lap and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is every man who sleeps with his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Yet that is exactly what this woman and her lover had done. They were guilty. They deserved to be killed. And there was only one person in that crowd who could have picked up that first stone and thrown it at her, and that was Jesus, because he was without sin. And yet he doesn't. Imagine if he had just thrown one stone, the rest of them would have picked up stones and descended on that woman like a pack of dogs, and she soon would have been dead. But Jesus doesn't throw the first stone. And in this, we learn the most important lesson about Jesus in this story, that he came first to redeem, not to destroy. He came first to save us, not to judge us. 
We've read John 3.16 recently in our study about how God loved the world so that he sent Jesus. And right after that it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came first to save sinners. And that's where he has been so misunderstood throughout history. Yet God doesn't automatically just forgive everybody, the Hitlers and the Pol Pots of the world. He requires something first. Now we need to remember that not every Bible story has every Bible truth in it. So we're going to go to some other passages real quick and we're going to put together what God requires in order to show mercy and forgiveness. Jesus himself summarized it at the beginning of his ministry, repent and believe in the gospel. The first words out of Peter's mouth on the day of Pentecost when he had preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2 and the crowd was cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? He said, repent. The first words out of Paul's mouth when the Philippian jailer asked him, what must I do to be saved, was believe on the Lord Jesus. It starts with repentance, with admitting that we are sinners and deserving of punishment. We ought not to be like that lady who commissioned a famous painter to do a portrait of her. And as she did it, she sniffed and said, and see that it does me justice. The painter took one look at her hard features and said, woman, what you need is not justice, but mercy and grace. <laughs> you see, we all think we're so good looking when we're really not. We ought not be like the Somali Uber driver that I met two weeks ago this morning in London. There was a group of us from College Park, thanks to your giving and your praying, that had a chance for a whole week to distribute Arabic Bibles in the streets of London, and Isaac was along with us. But Sunday, as we went to the airport in our Uber, there was a Somali man driving us. And as I got into the gospel with him, he said essentially this. He said, I don't need that because I'm not a sinner. He said, Muslims are good people. We pray five times a day and we don't do wrong. And you know what? I couldn't get any farther with the gospel with him because he didn't realize that the only people who receive the mercy of God are those who repent and realize they are sinners. We need to be like G.K. Chesterton, who, when the London Times asked him, what is wrong with the world, he gave them this notable reply. He said, dear sirs, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. My friends, that is how we access the mercy of God, by realizing that we are terrible sinners and that we deserve the punishment of death. You say, where do you see this in the story? Well, I see it in the presence of the woman after all the men had left. You know, as the crowd dispersed, she could easily have gone away with them all and disappeared in the woodwork and gotten away with it. But she doesn't. She senses something about this marvelous man and she stays in front of him in the dock, as it were, waiting for him to proclaim his verdict upon her. She realized that she was guilty and a sinner. And not only that, but she realized to some extent who was in front of her. When he said, has anyone condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. That was a term of respect for a teacher, but here I think it meant a lot more. It meant that she realized, perhaps not the full deity of Jesus Christ, but she realized that there was a man in front of her who was unlike any man who had ever walked on the face of the earth. And she was willing to entrust her future to him no matter what he said about it. 
She stood there in repentance and faith in an embryonic way. And Jesus turned to her and he said, neither do I condemn you. It's much the same response that he gave to the paralytic man lowered through the, the roof when he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, with tenderness, looked on her repentance and faith and forgave her out of his great mercy. Her sins, though they were red as scarlet, became as white as snow. Sinner, do you have a load of guilt today? Those skeletons in your closet? Do you, like the Lady Macbeth, have spots of blood on your hand that do not wash off no matter how hard you try? And who eventually cried out, Out, damned spots! You see, we cannot get rid of our sins ourselves. We need a Savior. And that's why we marvel at the mercy of Jesus. There is nothing. There is nothing you have done that he cannot forgive. His mercy is wide. And his mercy is deep. And if you will turn to him in repentance and faith, he will forgive your sins out of his marvelous mercy. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners like you and me and this woman to repentance. Well, thirdly, then, we marvel at his righteousness, verse 11b. There is a final critical point in this encounter. Go and from now on sin no more. See, Jesus came into this world to make an end of sin. He realized that sin is a cancer that is destroying his beautiful creation. And he came to not just get rid of its penalty, but its power and its presence. He hates any vestige of sin because he is holy. While Jesus has mercy on any penitent sinner, while he's willing to forgive any sin, he still demands holiness because this is who he is. You, therefore, he says, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he told the woman in six words what it took Paul six chapters in the book of Romans to say. He said essentially this, that we who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? When we understand what Christ has done for us, we want to be freed from sin and we will flee from it and we will live godly lives. Why do we marvel at his righteousness? You might be feeling like, oh, I'm just putting the law back on you now. Is that what Jesus was doing? Oh, no, there's something marvelous in here. It, it's hidden deep. But what Jesus was saying to this woman, I think, was essentially what he told his church through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, and this woman in an embryonic form was now in Christ, she is a new creation. The old has passed away, all the junk, all the skeletons have gone away, and the new has come. And what is the new that he has brought? It is what he promised through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, that I will take out your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and write my law on your mind and on your hearts. The new thing that God does for us is he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us that now wants to do God's will and has the power of God to do it. We marvel at his righteousness because he enables what he requires. This quote is attributed to John Bunyan, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. 
Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. We have the wings of the Holy Spirit now that allow us to lift up off of this earth full of sin and the gravitational pull that has continually taking us back to that lifestyle and to be set into orbit in the freedom of holiness. But there's another reason to marvel at God's righteousness and his demand for holiness, and that is that it's actually best for us. Listen to these words of Scott Hubbard of Desiring God Ministries. This is a little bit of a longer quote. Again, it's in the manuscript, so you can go back to it, but listen to these words. They're worth hearing. For all the liberation sin promises, handing ourselves over to it degrades us, dishonors us, dehumanizes us. Sin promises to give us whatever we want and then leaves us with less than we ever had. Jesus is forward-looking, not past-focused. He is ready to give this woman a new life, a new identity, and the power to overcome her sin. He is not only interested in what we've done, but also in what we can become. He loves us too much to let us keep living the way we have been. Then he describes how when we walk in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit roams through the wastelands of our soul and brings new life once again. And that new life springs up and gives us a taste of what eternal life in heaven will be. And maybe this is the lesson that you need today. Maybe you've marveled at his wisdom. Maybe you've received his mercy, but maybe you're back in a pattern of sin and confession and sin and confession. Jesus' words to you this morning are go, and from now on, sin no more. So in conclusion, what do you make of it? Is Jesus judgmental? Well, he wasn't in this story, but this isn't the whole story. He will be judgmental. Since he is God, he has standards, he has revealed them, and he has never changed his mind, and we know what they all are because they're written down for us. He will bring into account all that we have done, and he will judge us by his perfect standards. How do I know that? Because Revelation 20 describes this scene. At the end of time, there's going to be a great white throne in heaven, and in front of that throne will be assembled every single person who ever lived throughout history, including you and me. And who is going to be on that throne? This marvelous Lord Jesus. How do I know that? Because Jesus himself said in John 5, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. You see, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And because Jesus came and lived for a while among us, because he understands what it's like to be tempted, he is going to entrust judgment to Jesus. And on that day, there will also be another book in heaven, and it is the book of life. And if anybody turns to Jesus in repentance and faith, your name will be written in that book of life. And so here's what's going to happen you're going to get your turn on stage with Judge Jesus. The whole world will be watching, and books will be opened. Everything you ever did, thought, said, is going to be written there. 
Those skeletons are going to be ready to tumble out in front of the whole world. But if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the judge is going to look in your book and he's going to say, I see nothing here. It's completely clean because I paid your debt. Please enter into heaven, my son, my daughter. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we marvel at you today in your word. Your wisdom is amazing. You know so much more than we do. Your mercy is beyond any expectation. You extend it to even the most vile and foulest of us. Nothing is too great for you to forgive. And then you bring us out of the muck and the mire. You put our feet on a rock and give us a new place to stand. You allow us to live eternal life now in righteousness and holiness. And we give you our thanks. And Lord Jesus, now as we turn to this table, help us to understand, to marvel even in a deeper sense than we perhaps ever have before at the price you paid for our salvation. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.